Sometimes when we start a book of the Bible, it gives us some information. And uh, Jeremiah, it's all giving information, isn't it? Jeremiah starts with these opening few verses up to verse 3, and it kind of introduces him some biographical details. It introduces him with some chronological details. These are fancy words, aren't they? It tells us who he is, when he was, and what was going on around him, the geopolitics. There's a bunch of, of kings, and it was always and is always a massive challenge to work out which is your Jehoiakim and which is your Jehoiachin, because they're father and son. If only we had a picture of Jehoiachin, and we imagine you know have a big chin. That was a joke. Uh, anyway, <laughs> thank you. And Zedekiah. There's a context to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of is is a major prophet. He's the longest book in the Bible, most words. And as I'm sure you know, he's he's um, often referred to in various ways, sometimes the weeping prophet. It's a tough gig, as we heard at the end. He's going to stand up, Jeremiah, stand up, we're told, get ready to say to them, whatever I command you, don't be terrified. And says, it's basically going to be you versus them. Gulp. But I am with you. But there's some important kind of things just to understand before we kind of get into who Jeremiah was and what he was called to do and hopefully draw a few things out for us this evening. The context of Jeremiah is not just ancient history but comes in a remarkably chaotic time. If you can't see the parallels with our politics in the world right now, maybe you will see in a moment. I'm not by this implying I'm Jeremiah, by the way, and um, so forth. This, this time in the era of the life of Israel more particularly, I should say, Judah, is, is one of decline. It's one of loss. It's one of fear and powerlessness. In the context of the word great, that they remember how God had called them. They remember the covenant that had been established. They remember all the great uh, miracles that God had done in establishing them as a people. They remember the great kings. Well, for a moment, let's forget Saul because, you know, he started off but wasn't so great. But then David and then Solomon. Uh, and then, well, it got a bit messy because we divided the kingdom, the north being Israel, the south the, 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 the tribe of Judah, situated around Jerusalem. And we get reference to this. And then comes through the story of Chronicles and Kings. We're told about these different kings, the different rulers, of how these nations, the, the two nations of Israel, the north, Judah, the south, vied for each other and what they did, of how they remained faithful or not. And their rulers mattered one of the things that we were really reminded of over the last couple of months in the end of the reign of, 
Elizabeth. And indeed, in the end of the reign of Johnson and Truss, if I'm allowed to say reign, uh, and there's Rashid Sunak, or Sunuk, as Biden called him, um, is the importance of praying for our leaders. That God, as we're told in many parts of the Bible, appoints leaders, and they have a vocation, a calling, a responsibility in their position of power to act in a manner that pleases God or not. God would give the historical judgment on these leaders, saying they did good in the eyes of the Lord, or they did evil. Let that be written, not the view of the pundits. We are to pray for our leaders that they should govern wisely and within the framework of what God has set out. And if they don't, to pray that they would have a change heart or pray, Lord, your kingdom come. We hear in these opening words, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkaliah, verse 1, and one of the priests of Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin. Hopefully a few of those words have begun to, to bring um, resonance to you. We're told about um, it, how long his uh, prophetic ministry came. It says the, they came in the 13th year in the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through to the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah. I know this doesn't really ring a lot of kind of like, oh, really? Josiah was a good king. A reformist, he, he loved the law, he reinstituted good things in the people of God. He led well. And, and that's the beginning of, of Jeremiah's calling. We're, we're told that that's about 627 BC. There wasn't much going on in England then. But there was at the end of the Mediterranean, as indeed in Egypt, as indeed in the Middle East great, great empires. So God called Jeremiah in a time when the superpower of the day, the Assyrians, were beginning to decline. Israel, kind of sandwiched between in the south, Egypt, and the Assyrian Empire. But there was beginning to be this time that... um, the Babylonian Empire was getting stronger and stronger to the north, Iraq, essentially. And they became, in uh, 605 BC, the major power, Nebuchadnezzar, the one who was flexing his muscles, the one who was pretty awful, actually, in what he would do. He would come and conquer. And bring, bring his armies, he would be violent and brutal. He was feared. Gave them a chance. Honor me, come under my power, pay me taxes. You'll be all right. Stand against me, I will obliterate you. And in many ways, the politics were about Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and Babylon and, and the rise of that empire and in the south, Egypt. 
reason I'm telling you this is because it takes a part of the story. That in Egypt, they were still kind of of great influence and they were kind of vying for prestige. It's a bit like America and China of who's going to have the trade deal and who's going to sign treaties with them and who comes under the orbit of NATO and who comes in the orbit of, you know, you get the, impre- you get the impression. And, and Ju- Israel, Judah, is stuck in the middle and they're kind of like, who do we turn to? Who do we turn to? Because the kings had forgotten who their real strength is. Some of the psalmists beautifully say, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots and some trust in princes. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar or the Pharaoh, where do we go? Who's the best? Who's the strongest? And the psalmists and the prophets and the worshipping community say, we look to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's where our help comes from. He's our defender. He's our rescuer. There's great saga in the turmoil of these, of these kings. And their reigns and rules begin to become very, very short or shorter. Josiah dies. He's uh, then Jehoahaz. He reigns for three months. And there's 11 years of Jehoiakim. And then Jehoiachin. Is for three months, and Zedekiah the uncle is the last. It's really significant because in that line is the end, the terminus of the sons of David. Remember when King David was made a covenant with the Lord? You'll be my son, I'll be your father, and there will never cease to be an everlasting throne that we read these stories at Christmas. But these are the end of them. And Zedekiah is the uncle. And he has a really unfortunate kind of uh, last few days on his rule as the nation collapses around him. The Nebuchadnezzar comes. They've put their trust in Egypt. They've, they've kind of said, we'll, we'll stake our flag with Egypt. And they get the wrong side. Well, they got the wrong side by any of them. The Lord was the one to watch over them. But Nebuchadnezzar arrives and he kills his family in front of him. And then they gouge his eyes out. So the last thing that he sees was that pretty horrific thing. Sorry, I should have said it's an 18 today. Um, And then they cart him off and a lot of the other people like Daniel and so forth to Babylon. It's a chaotic time. The kings, the line of the kings, gone. Temple and all its stuff is is destroyed and carried out and... and, um, Jerusalem is sacked, the walls are destroyed. All the people are either killed, exiled, carted off to Babylon and left. They left the waifs and strays and the also-rans and the mutts, so to speak, of society. In the context of that, in the context of how it should have been perhaps that the Lord was dealing with his people because of their infidelity and unfaithfulness. He calls and raises people up. It's always the Lord's way. That even in the midst of the darkest time when it seems that everything has become um, lost, hope has gone, that it seems like all the forces of evil and darkness are, are, are in ascendancy. The Lord wonderfully raises up people, persons, 
calls them. Lovely uh, phrase in the story of, of, of Esther in the book of the Bible. And, and we're told for, for Queen Esther, for such a time as this. It's often the theme of women's conferences, I've noted. But it's not just Esther. The judges in the book of Judges. Of King David, just the little boy out in the pastures when everyone was heads and shoulders better. God raises people up on the national level and also the local. I haven't got time to survey all of church history, but do you know when there's dark times, God raises up people. Think in the dark age, the end of uh, the dark ages, the middle ages, uh, what now we call the beginning of the Reformation, that the church was really, really compromised the Catholic Church, at least in the West. And God raised up a number of people, including Martin Luther, who discovered that actually faith comes purely by faith, sola fides, not through works. There's no indulgences. You can't buy your way and favor in God. And such was the monumental shift, the earthquake that went through the world, but recovered a sense of love for biblical truth. Just one of them. In our, in our probably many of our living memory, not quite mine, but I know for many here, the Martin Luther King Jr. was raised up by God, Baptist pastor in America, to challenge the darkness of racism, to champion civil rights. Even in the local. Don't let us think we've got to pass the buck to somebody else. God's going to raise up someone and they'll be famous. Well, fame only comes at the end of the story. But God raises up local people, people like us. I love how Philip, when we tell the story of the church, tells us about Richie Irvin, who just felt called to this church and lived for 10 years and replanted the church and built this and built Phil and Hermes Manson then died and rests in the back garden now. Um, raised people up. God does this. And so we get to the story of Jeremiah. And, and lest we think, well, he's a privileged one. He's, he's really a mutt of the kingdom, if I'm able to use that phrase. What do I mean? Well, the context of his life, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Um, we're told that it's amazing that the word of the Lord came, verse 4, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Wow. Even before conception happened, that sense of the purposes and plans of God. Lest you think this is just special Jeremiah, turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and it says, He knew us, he predestined us before the creation of the world. Such is his love for each one of us. Hallelujah. If you think we're excluded, if you think you're not part of God's great plan and you can't opt into it by saying yes to him, remember that he knows you. He knows you. Right from when you were a single cell, when no one else did, and even now, however many cells you have, he knows you. In utero, he was set apart. We're told that he's going to be a prophet uh, to the nations. I appointed you, verse 5, um, 
Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Wow. It's easy to think of Jeremiah as just a prophet to Israel. I mean, to Judah, that's to whom he speaks. But actually God says, no, 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 there's much more than this to the nations. Back to those uh, early verses. Did you hear it? The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. You need to kind of just grasp some of this. And, and again, sorry if this is history 101. What, what bells does Benjamin start to ring? Small and? Did you say small? You did say small. Because there's a word that sounds like small that's also quite important. Scratching hand. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. And he was from tribe Benjamin. Also, Benjamin is the tribe that nearly gets wiped out in the book of Judges. It's not a great tribe, to be honest. The first king, Saul, who is compromised and and seeks his own fame. But this is Jeremiah. From that least, that small, that despised tribe. That tribe that has always not really been part of really committed like perhaps some of the other tribes in Israel's history. We, we've said uh, that, that uh, it, we've talked about the tribe of Benjamin. It's an outside tribe. But I wonder if you remember this strange little story. Again, I'm not expecting that you might, but some of you, I know you love the Bible. Um, there's a really interesting little episode, and it's to do with a priest called Abiathar. If you want to look it up, I, I won't read it all, but it, in 1 Kings chapter 2, so that's a little bit earlier in the, um, in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, um, let me just read it to you. When David is coming to the end of his life, he's had quite a lot of children and it's been a bit messy. And there's a little bit of a coup that goes on. That, got, that David has kind of said, yeah, Solomon should be the next one. But some of the other children don't really like it. And there's conspiracies going on. So let me just read this to you. First uh, Kings chapter 2, 26 and 27. Abner called out to Joab. Uh, I'm reading Samuel. That's why it's the wrong verse. That would have been a long reading. So basically there's been this coup. David has said that Solomon should uh, become on the throne. But there's been this kind of conspiracy. And listen to what it says. To Abithar, the priest... Sorry, to Abiathar, the priest, the king said, Go back to your fields in Anathoth. Just heard that in Jeremiah. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now. The reason being is Abiathar, as the high priest, the priest, had supported this coup and lent the religious authority to this upstart. He said, Solomon, no, but we're going to promote and we're going to celebrate. We're going to put this other king on the throne. And it's a bit like Justin Welby saying, and I give the endorsement of the Church of England. So it's like a really important thing. 
the whole weight of the religious establishment to say, this is the one, the anointed that God has raised up. But it wasn't God's will. To Abiathar, the priest, the king said, go back to your fields in Anatoth, tribe Benjamin. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father David and shared all my father's hardships. So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. The high priest Abiathar, the kind of um, great, 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 great grandfather perhaps, was banished to Anathoth. He was a priest, but he was sent away and he wasn't allowed to have anything to do with the worshipping heart of the community, of the people, of the Levites, of, of worshipping God in the sacrificial system and all that the, the priesthood was meant to be. He was sent away. He was excluded. He was marginalized. Why that becomes important is in these opening verse, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. In other words, it's likely that Jeremiah is descended from this crooked, depraved, exile priest of a tribe that was um, not valued, who'd committed kind of a coup, who was like way on the outside in an area and wasn't, and they were, they were, if they carried on in their priestly fashion, which they probably did, they weren't actually part of what they were meant to do, authorized by God. And God says to this man, Jeremiah, before you were born, right from conception, I called you, I raised you up. Think about that. Sorry, that sounded a bit harsh, didn't it? I, I mean, it's, it's actually astonishing that if God can call a misfit mutt outside a vagabond of a really dodgy heritage, you know, in that TV program, who do you think you are? It's all black marks. And God raises this outsider, this hate figure, to stand for him and stand for all that God would do. God raises the most unlikely people up. Isn't that astonishing? And if he can do that for them, the Jeremiah's of this world and all the rest, Moses, the murderer, etc., etc., what about you and I? Jeremiah says, I'm too young. We always say that. In about 627, in the 13th year of Josiah, and all this complex thing. Who am I? I can't speak. I'm too young. I don't know enough. I'm from the outside. I don't, you know, I'm not welcomed. I'm not from a family of status or history. I'm not on the in crowd. I'm well on the out. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. 
I will be with you and I will protect you. I'll shorten the rest of what I was going to say. You'll be glad to know. What was he called to do? Well, it's really interesting that in this prophetic call, in this prophetic call, it is not something he sees. Think of Isaiah and the call. He sees the great throne of heaven. Or Moses sees the burning bush and and so forth. Actually, it's really specific. The word of the Lord came. The word of Yahweh came to me. There's a real sense of this weeping prophet is also the declaring prophet of the word of God. Of course, out of that, there's this then this sense of, of Jeremiah, what do you see? And first he sees an almond tree, a bit random, but there's a word play. Actually, the, the word for almond sounds like uh, the Hebrew word for watching. In other words, is he going to be faithful? Is, it's this word play. Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see an almond tree. And God says, I see that you can see because I'm watching. And it's all a word play around the almond tree. Is Jeremiah going to be true to what he hears the Lord say? Then he's asked again, second time, uh, what do you see? And he says, I see a pot that is boiling and it's tilting towards us from the north. And then the Lord says, this is what that means. From the north will come judgment, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. I wonder if he was daunted. I think he probably is. Because God says, don't be terrified by them or I'll terrify you. A message to the nations to tear down, to uproot, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. It's six words, but they kind of coalesce. He he says, to uproot, to tear down, to destroy, to plant, to build, and to overthrow. There's a kind of couple, a coupling of to uproot and to plant a kind of agricultural, aren't they? Do you see that? To uproot and to plant. There's a sense in which this judgment that is coming is about your world that you live in. The fields that you draw crops from. As well as whether you know your place in the land, you will be uprooted, but there is also going to be a seed of grace to plant. There's going to be a tearing down and a build. It's a kind of metaphor, a coupling of words that speak about architecture, to tear down, to, to demolish, but also to build up. A sense of which God's word through Jeremiah will be focused towards the structures, the institutions, the city, But also this destroy and this overthrow, it's military language. It's battle language. And it is about the kingship and the power structures of authority that God will come against. Why? Because of idolatry, they've forsaken God and turned to others. As we come to this table, you think, gosh, here's the link. How does that work? 
The prophet Jeremiah, as do all prophets, when the word of God comes, reminds us to say, when God speaks, he sets out his standard. He declares what is right, what is holy, the way that we are to live. And in the prophecy of Jeremiah, and even in these open things, uh, these opening chapters, verses, we've seen that actually God says, the way that you are living without me is wrong. It will incur judgment, that it isn't the way I created and intended you. You've strayed so, so far. And he calls someone to enter into the chaos and the melee to speak truth. To declare what is right and how far we have wronged. That when the times see most dark, he raises up one who will be a light bringer. But also, as Jeremiah the prophet, in announcing what the kingdom should be and of how far we have strayed and erred and fallen, There is also to build and to plant. God raises up humans. As we come to this table, we see enacted judgment of one raised up by God into the darkness and chaos and fallenness and complexity of our world. One who from that moment of conception, God said, I Knew you, I formed you, you are mine. Before you were born, I set you apart. I pointed you as a prophet to the nations, a greater one than the weeping prophet Jeremiah. But rather than announcing judgment, this great Jesus that we celebrate took the judgment of everything that should be uprooted and torn down and destroyed and overthrown. He became and in his death and his broken body a planting and a building as we come to this table as you hold the elements in your hand what do you see sister and brother what do you see in the elements that you put in your mouth and taste and smell What do you see? Because there's two things. We see the cost and the mess and the destruction. And we see the love and the hope and the life. We see, what do we see? We see that we were enemies of God, but also we can see and watch that through his death we become friends. What a great, great moment. I'll ask us that question as we hold the bread and take the cup. What do we see? That the Savior, the rescuer, does it for us. But also, what do you see? That in his hands, as he calls us, all things become possible. And his voice still speaks to us. Will we come and follow? Recognize that we are called by name, that he raises us up into the mess of our world for such a time as this. Alan, come forward with the band and help us as we prepare for the table.